0: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to this edition of Football Digest. I'm Ned Keating and I'm joined this morning by Patrick Austin Hardy and Tom Dictor to run the rule over the biggest talking points in football. So I think no John Cross this week, but hopefully we will have the game back together next week. Might even be coming live from Naples with England playing out there, but hopefully uh, no, none of the scenes, hopefully they won't be involved in any of the scenes that we saw ahead of uh, napoli Untrack Frankfurt game in the uh, Champions League. And I'm sure they won't be, uh, if there are any who is listening. Um, chaps, we are going to start with the Champions League, though, this morning. Um, of course, one English club three in Manchester City, and we'll come on to them a little bit later on. Uh, but we are going to start with Liverpool this morning, Patrick. Um, and in terms of, it wasn't a defeat that we weren't expecting. We knew that they weren't going to go through in the Champions League. You know, I know Jurgen Klopp in his pre-match press conference had said, you know, even if there's a 1% chance that I'm the only person in the world to believe in it, I I, I will still believe. And I like that. Grand, there's nothing wrong with a bit of optimism, Jurgen. But, we, you know, the, the defeat and the exit to Real Madrid wasn't unexpected. But in terms of the manner of the performance is that slightly what might be disappointing for Liverpool fans in that, you know, they had nothing to lose. They, they, you know, they there was this expectation that they would progress anyway. So they might as well have just thrown everything at it. You look at that starting 11-4 strikers in there in Diogo Jota, Darwin Nunes, Cody Gakpo, Mohamed Salah, you're thinking, all right, they are going to go for it. This could be a bit interesting. And Well, it just seemed a bit flat. It was like Tottenham the other week as well. You kind of think that, you know, You've got nothing to lose. You might as well chuck everything at it. But it it kind of just felt flat for Liverpool in Madrid last night.
1: Perhaps. Um, I think that's very fair to say. But then again, it was an improvement on the last performance. I think particularly defensively as well. I mean, in the first day, they came flying out the traps. They scored those two goals. It really looked like there was a huge shot. But Real Madrid are just so experienced. I, I don't think anyone was expecting them to blast five goals away like that at Angels. But then they did. And yes, um, I do appreciate some fans. You know, they want to go hell for leather, gung ho, to go for an incredible comeback. But then again, we don't want to be on the other end of a five-nil pasting again. A bit like when Arsenal played against Bayern Munich over two legs and they lost ten-two, didn't they? On that was that was just an extraordinary result. But I think the result was better. They did have a few moments at the Burn and bow where things just didn't quite go their way. Heavy touches, over-hit passes, things like that. But Real Madrid, they're just so inevitable, especially in a Burton Bale. You need more than a perfect performance and something always falls their way, whether it's, as I said, a heavy touch, a deflection. I thought I thought their goal was quite fortunate as well. It was a little bit scrappy, wasn't it? But at the same time, I think, you know, I think they gave it a go.
0: But unfortunately,
1: it's, that's a very difficult ask to overturn the three-goal deficit to Bernabeu.
0: Tom, in terms of where Liverpool go next, Um, No game this weekend. Uh, They were due to play Fulham in the Premier League, but obviously Fulham are in FA Cup action instead. So it means they've got a nice lengthy break, obviously with the international window coming up after this weekend. They've got a big lengthy break to get ready for the next Premier League matches. But then you look at the run that they're going to return to, um, and it's Manchester City on April 1st, then it's Chelsea, then it's Arsenal. Liverpool only have the top four left to play for this season. Um, They're still well in the hunt, of course, you know, uh, the defeat against Bournemouth last weekend did, did serve as a bit of a hammer blow to those chances, but they're still well in the hunt. But you look at those three games and you're kind of thinking they really, really do need to use this break wisely to kind of not so much hit the reset. I think maybe their momentum has been checked a little bit by losing to Bournemouth, by losing to Real Madrid, but definitely they need to kind of find something that will ensure that they do click again, that they kind of get back to Liverpool of old because those three games are going to probably not absolutely decide how their season goes, but they're going to go a long way to helping definitely to the end of the season whether or not Liverpool can still be in that top four battle and picture
2: yeah I mean you, you, you mentioned momentum there and I think you know, that is the key word. Just it seems like it's something Liverpool haven't been able to finish this season you know you you see the, the Man United win followed by the Bournemouth performance you see the, the Man City win earlier in the season where it looked like that's something they can really build on something they can kind of take forward and yeah it, it is a, qu- a question now of You know why hasn't it been working? And is the extra break actually going to be beneficial in that sense? Um, We've seen them start to, you know, actually develop something at least at Anfield. Obviously, the away form is still uh, still a real challenge, but you know, rather than you know benefiting from the break, they might want to sit. They might look at this and think, well, we had some had a good thing going at Anfield the last few weeks. The uh, the run of games without conceding. And is that now going to be dented? Is it, is it now going to be giving them too much time to think about the the gravity of what's ahead of them? And, you know, going beyond that, you have the issue of, you know, a few of players away with their countries having recently come back to fitness. Is there going to be a bit of, bit of damage there? And I guess, you know, the one positive you look at within all this is there is Diaz back in training. That. You can see how different a team they've been with him, without him. And I think as much as those three games that you mentioned, I think having Diaz back, if that's the case after the international break, then that could settle the rest of the season for Liverpool.
0: Yeah, with him back, maybe they should, uh, rather than play four strikers, just play five attacking players instead. Just, you know, miss out in the midfield entirely, if that's such an issue for them at the minute. Um, But Patrick, moving to the other English side, Manchester City obviously playing... And Liverpool, as we, as we said, when, when Liverpool returned to Premier League action, Liverpool first, but Manchester City also threw in the Champions League as well uh, and a crushing, convincing victory over RB Leipzig on, on Tuesday night. Erling Haaland, five goals, and yet Pep Guardiola in his post-match press conference comes out and, and pretty much intimates that he still expects more from him. Um, but the bizarre thing is, is that I think we all pretty much agree with him that there is still so much more to come from Erling Haaland. I think... Despite all of his goals this season, I, I was there for his debut um, against West Ham back in, back in August, and I kind of remember coming away thinking he scored twice, but he didn't really play that well. Now, he wasn't involved that much, I think, was the issue there. And that's what Pep Guardiola said, that he still needs to, despite all these goals and despite scoring five times against Leipzig and, and tying the record for most goals in the Champions League match, that there is still more opportunities for him. And that if he was to get more involved in matches, then perhaps in the games where he's not scoring, that means then he will score if that made sense. Um, so that obviously he's there, he's fresh, he's he's involved in the game, his mind's working. Um, but that is a scary prospect to think that there's still even more to come from him. Well, no, he might get ten goals in
1: one game with the waves. gone. I, I was uh, I was a little bit disappointed that Guardiola took him off actually because I thought we we could see something spectacular, a double hat trick, maybe seven. What what I loved most about his performance against Leipzig was. This might sound a bit strange, but every goal was an ugly goal. It it was a rebound, it was a tap in. And you had the penalty as well, and you cannot underestimate how important the ugly goals are because it's not just the fact of just being in right place, right time. You've got to know where to be. You've got to react quickest, You've got to foresee. I think what I really liked most about I think it was his second goal when, as soon as Kevin De Bruyne took that effort which hit the crossbar he was moving before it even hit the crossbar so that's why he was there before all of those players now um i, I certainly don't subscribe to the logic that city are a worse team with with him I just, I, I just don't i don't see any real sense to the argument but i do agree that you could see more from him because i think in a way maybe it's because it's his debut season i think in a way city have almost treated him like he's just some battering ram that will pick up these loose balls and win headers. He's a technically very, very good player. He's got an excellent first touch. I think he's got a brilliant football break. We saw when he was at Borussia Dortmund, I think he uh, contributed about eight assists in his last season, so he can create goals. He's got five assists in the Premier League already, but I don't think he's got any any other competition. So I do kind of agree he could be involved more in the build-up, but it depends what that looks like. I don't think he's the kind of player that will drop short, like a false nine, a bit like a Harry Kane or something like that it it just depends what city wants if if guardiola wants him to be just scoring goals like just scoring goals for fun then keep him on the left shoulder like he's doing but if he wants him to be in the build up then he does need to vary it because um whilst we did see against crystal palace okay he scored the penalty he wasn't involved in an awful lot and i think one thing which is so great is that he doesn't need many touches to score goals it's brilliant that efficiency is priceless but then again, he is a technically brilliant player. Maybe he could do more, but at the same time, can you really do more than score five goals in a game? I, I don't know personally, but who knows? It's a scary prospect.
0: There was the, uh, there was the quote during the round again this week about uh, Erling Haaland's dream, and he he'd said that his dream was to score five goals with just five touches. So there you go, that's, that's exactly what he can do more of, you know, just, just kind of be there in the right place at the right time. But I'm just sticking with Haaland. Um, John Cross, in his in his, uh, post-match reaction, which you can read across the mirror's website um, uh, still now, in his in his post-match reaction, he was talking about Erling Haaland perhaps being the missing piece in Manchester City's Champions League jigsaw. And they've come close, um, and they're in the quarterfinals again this year, so they'll be hoping to kind of, and they look like they'll be among the favourites. I think they are, at the time of writing, um, or at the time of speaking even, uh, they are the bookmaker's favourites uh, for for the Champions League this season. Is he the type of player that they've been missing and is the type of player that will get them that elusive trophy
2: yeah I think in in previous seasons the issue for City has been you know getting those chances not converting them I just thinking back to that Real Madrid game um, the second leg was semi-final last season where I think it was Grealish went very close uh, at 1-0 you, as we've been saying earlier you give Real Madrid a Smith they will they will find a way and it's moments like that um also, you know, Spurs', uh, Spurs 2019 game uh, where the the margins are really fine and you need sometimes like a player who will get one chance, will score one goal. And I think that's where the discussion of does he need to do more? Um, they, They've got players who can do the other things. They they don't need, they don't need Melanie Harlem doing the job of a Riyad Mahrez or the job of a Jack Reedish in this spot. Like, they brought him in for a purpose. I'm sure Pep Guardiola, like, no, has looked at what they've been missing previous years. He's found found the kind of player who can deliver on that. I mean, there's a there's a reason why they allow Gabriel Jesus to go, why they allow Raheem Sterling to go, and that is a reliance on, you know, or an acceptance that Bernie Harlan can produce, you know, the extra one percent, where wherever it is in the. Uh, in the key games, whether that's the quarterfinal, whether it's further on the competition. And it's, yes, if they haven't won the Champions League yet, but More, weirdly, I guess weirdly with the exception of that uh, Leon game in 2020, but like, um, you know, recent years it's, it's been those tiny, tiny margins. And that's why you get a guy who can just override those margins and just,
0: you know, make them not matter. Yeah, that, that Leo game, I think, still lives on in infamy, doesn't it? You know, setting up to Manchester City, just just the thought and the idea of Manchester City tweaking their tactics to uh, to ensure that they nullify Leon's threats rather than kind of focusing on their own. It still seems bizarre to even say that out loud, even in this day and age. Um, chaps, we are going to finish this this little second, though, on um, looking ahead to the quarterfinals. And this is with the caveat that, obviously, we're recording this before the draw is made. So, you know, any predictions here could very quickly go out of the window. Um, But we know the final eight teams in the Champions League this season, Chelsea, Manchester City from the Premier League, Bayern Munich from the Bundesliga, the Serie A trio of Inter Milan, AC Milan and Nathalie, Uh, Benfica of Portugal and Spain's Real Madrid. Patrick, going to come to you first on this one, who's going to be lifting the trophy in Istanbul in June? I can't see past Real
1: Madrid, unfortunately, not necessarily because I think they're the best team or because they've got the best players. I just think, as I was, as i was saying earlier, there's just something so inevitable about them. I think beating Real Madrid over two legs might actually be one of the greatest challenges in sport as a whole. It's almost like in tennis, Rafa Nadal at like the French Open, it was just almost indestructible. I think very very few people beat it. It just seemed impossible. It's just like it reminds me of when Chelsea is last year. Real Madrid had three legs. They they played against PSG played against Chelsea, They played against Manchester City. They should have been knocked out in every single one of them. They they had absolutely no right to win any of those games. But they found a way because they've just got so much experience. They've got know-how. You've got Karim Benzema, who's just a sensational striker. Modric and Kroos, are like the Benjamin Buttons of footballs, of football at the moment. We've got Carlo Ancelotti, who's the calmest man in the room, no matter what. It's even when Liverpool went 2-0 ahead at Anfield. I I just thought, I think Real Madrid will get back. I, I just, I, I knew they would. I did think they'd get back in that kind of fashion. No doors. Well, I, having said that, you know, if they if they get drawn against Bayern Munich or someone like that, and then the two Giants get drawn against each other, then they could get knocked out. And I think it's, I think three teams, I think, yeah, Manchester City are in there as well. They'll be huge. I've got my eye on Napoli though. I really, really do, because that they're just in the zone. That, they're blasting everyone away, and they have an 18-point lead in Syria, which you you can almost, with an 18-point lead, okay, yeah, mathematically it's not over yet, but you can almost switch off in a way, as well. I think that that will be a landmark title for that series. I think it's the first one in about 30 years, or. Something like that. So I imagine most of their focus will be on that. But even still, that they seem to have everything at the minute, and they're not just beating opponents; they're, they're battering them as well. Like what they did to fight for what they did to Liverpool in the group stages. I think they blasted Ajax and Rangers away as well. So they've made a huge statement. All it depends with them is with experience will start, and B, if they do end up coming up against a Real Madrid or Manchester City, can they carry that form in there? But it's 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 quite an open playing feels overall really. I mean, I, I still think Real Madrid are my winners, I believe, but there could be a shock though
0: in there as well. It it really depends what the draw is. And Tom, for you, who do you think uh, will be lifting the trophy at the Ataturk Stadium? Yeah, as you say, Patrick, with with Real Madrid, like there's even a sense
2: that sort of I remember 2019 when um, when they lost to Ajax, still thinking, oh, like right, you know, Zidane's coming back. They said there'll be some way that they override that result and somehow get let back in and still win it. Like even when they've been knocked out of the tournament, it feels like they're still still in the running for it. Um, but I think, um, yeah, it, it, I think a lot of it does come down to the draw. Um, I think were Real Madrid to find themselves up against Napoli at this point, that would be a real challenge for them. Um, I think we're we're hugely kind of, look the fact that we haven't really gone into too much depth about Bayern Munich is like speaks to the strength of the competition as a whole. Um, you know, they they won every game. <laughs> they've, uh, I think they're they're still not secure in, in the Bundesliga, but they, you know, they were given that, that group with Barcelona and Inter, and I think it's kind of slipped under the radar a bit how how dominant they were in that, and and then they're getting into PSG. Um, but I'm I'm gonna ignore all of those teams that I mentioned, I think this is City's year. I think um I think the way that they've approached the Champions League as opposed to the Premier League this season suggests that, you know, it, it comes from a place of, okay, we won it this time. We we've come close. And I think while there is still a huge amount of competition, I think City have something different this season. I think in, in Europe they've looked pretty unstoppable. They've looked like they've got the luck as well, which has not necessarily happened with them in previous years. Uh, we've seen, I think it was the yeah, it was the Spurs game, wasn't it in 2019, where oh, 99 times out of 100 they're going through from that game, and you get you get the one out of 100 where they don't. I think you saw the the penalty that was given against Leipzig the other night. It's like maybe things are kind of turning in their direction. Maybe things are. You know, they're getting the rub of the green as well as having the obvious quality that they have in the squad. So on with their city, I think it's just their time.
0: This is where I'll we'll go really contrariously. Stick your neck on the line and So we'll have a uh, Benfica AC Milan final. That will never happen in a month the Sundays. From Europe's Premier Club competition to probably the world's Premier competition, full stop. Um, the World Cup, we've got the final plans for 2026 in place. Um, we're expanding to a 48 team competition uh, for the next edition of the World Cup. Um, prior to the previous edition in December, there was all this talk about moving to to 12 groups of, I'm trying to do the maths here, um, 16 groups of three. That was it. There's too many numbers. There is in this section, if maths are not your strong point, there are about to be quite a lot of numbers thrown at you. So I do apologise, even I'm struggling. And I have an A at GCSE in maths as well. So this should be quite interesting. But yes, it was supposed to be 16 groups of three. um, But there was always this suggestion when that was being thrown around that it could lead to dead rubbers. And, and, you know, um, the drama that we saw in Qatar basically not being replicated. You know We all remember that group stage. And I think every single group had something brilliant riding on it. And the drama that we had was was unmatched and it was phenomenal. I think that may be played into the change of plans that we've seen this week in that now it is 12 groups of four. Yes, yeah, so again, I am still running through the maths in my head to make sure that I have got 48 as my final number. So yes, 12 groups of four is now the plan. Um, top two from each group going through and then the uh, eight best uh, third place teams as well. Again, I'm still making sure that I think that makes a draw somewhere along the line. Again, I said too many numbers for this stage in the morning. But anyway, the main team to take away is that we now have Groups of four, again, we won't have any silly, uh, you know, chances of, of dead rubbers games, you know, where they play the kickabout for nil-nils. And Patrick, I'm going to come on to it in a second about who this is bad for, but from us as fans and lovers of football, the fact that we should still have things riding on final games, that this idea that, you know, nil-nil boring kickabouts are now out the window because of the fact that it's not group to three, it's group to four, we should be embracing this change and say well done FIFA for actually spotting something, realising it and making the right move.
1: No, Uh, I'm I'm going to respectfully disagree with that, I'm afraid. Uh, No offence, Ned. Um, There will be dead rubbers, unfortunately, because you've got the eight best third place teams going through as well. In fact, there's going to be some occasions where the team in Group A who will be in third place, they will not know until the final match in Group H, whatever it is, is played if they've gone through or not. I think the eight best third place teams is, is, it's a little bit of a shambles in a way because you could, it's like when Portugal won the Euros in 2016, they drew all three matches. They got the same amount of points as Albania who only went out. I think they scored one or two less goals than them or something like that. And so we're going to see teams finishing thirds going into the knockout stages. And and the thing is no team is going to vote against this because you know, they're, you know, I think Germany finished third, didn't they? They may have gone. They may have gone through during this format. So no, no one's going to spit in the soup and say they don't like this. But that that final round of group games in a World Cup was absolutely unbelievable, and that was because it was just the top two teams. It's like Spain's group, especially. I think everybody was going through. At one point, they kept some challenging places with the third with the third place teams. That's going to be completely different, and it goes back to what I said earlier, you're going to have teams in the earlier groups play their games and they could be there for what another three or four days and to be told, Oh, you've actually gone out because so and so in group H recorded a draw or scored two goals. So I'm 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 not a huge fan of this. I think um I I I don't really like change to be honest. I thought I think the thirty two group I think the thirty two team World Cup was brilliant as it is. But it's going to it's going to pocket FIFA approximately an extra one billion dollars or something like that. So they're always going to do it. And okay, yeah, it's great for a lot of the smaller nations who will now be able to get into the World Cup. But it, it's 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 a tough one. I, I see I see both sides, but I think from a pure
0: entertainment fan perspective, I, I don't like the new format at all. Uh, I'm I'm sure the players as well will also uh, hate it too. Um, Tom, because they're going to have to be playing, what is it, well, not all of them playing 104 matches, I will stretch that, but there will be 104 matches in total in the tournament, and now it means that eight matches, an extra game to win the World Cup, obviously, becomes that little bit tougher, a little bit more uh, straining on the squad, a little bit more draining on their fitnesses and reserves. And from a player's point of view, um, and we'll come on to this point a little bit later on as well, because of course, there's the Club World Cup uh, plans that we've got to talk about as well, but that's the last thing any footballer wants, isn't it? Just an extra match. And like, I know now, you know, there's always talk about sports science being so advanced and developed squads being bigger. We're seeing 26 man teams at tournaments, but still, like it kind of feels like, I know it's only, oh, it's only one extra game, but you know, seven games was, was long enough, wasn't it? To, to add an extra one in for those that want to go the distance in this tournament. And actually an extra game in for those that unfortunately end up in the third place play off. <laughs> Just scrap that. Just do us all a favour and scrap that anyway but it, it, it's tough on the players to, to add another game into an already crammed schedule.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, if, if we're adding an eighth game, then might as well just make it a 60 World Cup. That way, you know, you keep the uh, two-go-through set up. You have around the 32 and you don't have teams, just kind of, as with Albania, you don't have teams kind of suffering just because they happen to be drawn in Group A. And um, I, I, th- I think, you know, to the wider point, we're in a spot where, you know, how many players have actually been asked about this? Um, is this a decision made purely for the, you know, wider footballing reasons rather than, you know, I mean, you look at the quality. Obviously, a 32 team World Cup, as we had in 2022, had a great final, had, um, you know, teams kind of hitting their strides um in, in the in the later stages but it you know there's a worry that you push it too far you know do you get to a point where in the later stage of the tournament if it's still condensed still cramped then you have teams who are running out of steam um especially i mean the, the world cup is you know it's, it's going to be 2026 you're going to have games in warm parts of the us and mexico you're going to have players who've already had like five, six games by the time they get to the later rounds. And I just, I can't see it being, you know, I can't see it aiding the entertainment value of the tournament. And then, you know, I I think we we will get a real test of that towards the end of this season as well. Obviously, the mid-season World Cup isn't something that's going to happen every time, but will we now see April, May teams kind of just like having players suffer from the pure volume of games that they've been playing over the course of the season I think it's adding more to that whether it's the World Cup whether it's the expanded club World Cup um, just like you're going to reach a point where you might have to just limit the number of minutes a player gets in the season just in order to preserve them in order to preserve entertainment and in order to like make make it so you're not Winding players, sort of running players into the ground for the sake of
0: a bit of extra sort of value on TV. Yeah, you wonder if it's going to dilute the the quality, as you said there, when you get to the to the later stages where everybody played so many games in testing conditions too. Um, but yeah, as as we touched on there, obviously the Club World Cup uh, plans have been finalised as well this week. FIFA holding its an annual congress in Rwanda, um, and, and the Club World Cup. Plans have been finalised. And Patrick, good news. We have a 32-team competition at least, so you can have that, back, uh, which is phenomenal news. But actually, on a, on a realistic point, as it was already with, you know, what was it, the 7 teams from across, um, across the world and the Continental Cup winners, for these teams in Europe, it was already the last thing that they wanted, probably. Um, you know, it's a competition that, that, you know, it doesn't really carry that much weight at the minute. It might grow into something bigger as, as they've revamped the competition now. But a 32-team competition once every four years, yes, they're not having to play every year, but this is, you know, if you ask Chelsea, you ask Real Madrid, the two guarantees at the minute because of uh, the fact that they are uh, the the previous two Champions League winners, the the only two guaranteed sides in it. If you ask them, I think this is probably the last thing that they'd want in the summer of 2025 going out to... um, potentially, you know, I'm not even sure where, where the hosts are supposed to be It Was any China was, was floated about when they first tried to get the plans through the door in 2021? I'm not sure yet if they've decided on the host for the 2025 competition, but they'd rather be focusing on pre-season getting their side rather than having these games tagged on at the end of, again, another testing long campaign that will be 2024,
1: 2025. It's a, it's a curious tournament, isn't it? All to two teams, as you said, you know, that, that's always good. I'm immediately happy on that. Um, in terms of its importance, that. That depends on the beholder. For me, I'm sure. I'm sure if if the tournament was running this year, I'm sure Graham Potter would definitely appreciate an opportunity to win a trophy in the Club World Cup, considering how difficult things have been this season. Look, you're right. I don't think players will be too enamoured with the idea of a 32 team Club World Cup competition. I I happen I quite enjoy the World Cup when British, decided the Club World Cup when British teams involved in it. Um. I completely missed it this year. I didn't even realize it was on until I hold. Real Madrid ended up winning it. It's it's going to be interesting to see how they fit it into the schedule. But the thing is, instead of like asking why are they expanding all these tournaments and bringing in more teams and bringing in more fixtures, I think you need to ask. Why do they feel the need to do that? And the reason they need to do that is because quite often its wages in football teams are far too high. We've already seen La Liga have already, already realised the situation. They imposed the um, I think it was the salary caps, I believe it was, which saw and you know, which saw Lionel Messi depart Barcelona because they physically could not keep him on to stay within these guidelines. Now, um, I don't think Barcelona players were too willing to compromise on that to keep Messi. There wasn't an awful lot of players run into except pay cuts and things like that. But this is, but this is why there was all these extra games being played, more games, more broadcast revenue. It's Leicester City have just reported losses of approximately 92.5 million pounds. Their wages to revenue percentage has jumped from 85% to 94%. That is not sustainable at all. And that is and of course Leicester City, there's other clubs suffering similar situations, maybe not quite as bad as that. So there needs to be some kind of compromise between footballers, football clubs and governing bodies because they're eating each other after a minute. And as you said, this will see lots and lots more games, which is not always a negative because that could lead to more opportunities for young players and stuff like that. You know, football managers are not forced to play their best players. So this could lead to more opportunities than said, but they need to they need to realise the situation because football in its current state is not sustainable at the minute. If it's getting to the point where you need to be owned by another country to be able to compete, then that that's a little bit of a problem. They need to be able to stand on their own two feet as sustainable businesses, which at the minute, that does not appear
0: to be the case. Tom, before I ask this next question, though, I am thinking of the uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch here uh, where they're talking about all the football, all of the time, everywhere, every single game on. But are we reaching that point? Are we getting to that stage that we actually probably have too many football matches in the calendar and that, you know, after after these latest plans from FIFA, that we're actually getting to a point where, frankly, there is no further room to add to the calendar or, you know, am I being a bit too pessimistic there and surely someone somewhere a bit greedy will find somewhere to squeeze in another match or two? Uh, I mean, I think one of the questions you've got to ask about this is,
2: yes, teams are... You know, are being forced into extra games, being forced into you know competitions they might not choose to. But you're still seeing preseason tours, you're still seeing teams travelling, playing money-spinning games wherever. And I think there's a, a strong case for you know saying, "Oh, we can have this, but we can't have this." One of these is egregious; the other one is actually just fine. Um, you look at with the announcement this week of, of the expanded tournament you see how excited a team like Seattle Sanders was to be able to take part in wider uh, in the expanded club World Cup. And I think there is a tendency, I'm sure like we've all been guilty of it to because you know we we follow English football, we live in England, we're gonna look at how this impacts the European teams and particularly the Premier League teams. And for all FIFA's flaws, through all the Other issues going on, I think we do need to kind of take a look at it from the perspective of teams from other confederations. And um, for them, this is helping maybe helping redress some of the imbalance that has come from the, the huge amounts of money from the Champions League. That you know, the reason why the Cobble Cup is less appealing to a lot of people is because there's such an imbalance, because there are so many, you know, because the, the European teams are normally just like so far ahead of. Even the South American team too, at one point, not that long ago, would definitely give them a good run for their money. Now it's, you know, you've got got Europe on on one side, you've got then everyone else kind of playing almost a different sport. And I think that is, yeah, that's something we need to consider when, when we're, okay, is it too many games? Is it too many games for who? Is is the question we should be asking.
0: Reminded me there when you were talking about the uh, South American sides uh, being good of, of the original Club World Cup back in 2000 when I think it was two uh, Brazilian sides that contested the final and Man United crashed out, I think, in a group status, didn't they as well? I mean, I'm showing my age there as well by being able to remember that. Moving from one Club Cup competition uh, into another, now the FA Cup, uh, like the Champions League, is reaching its uh, quarter final stage, and we've got that coming up this weekend. Um, Patrick, looking at the tyres, we've avoided the Manchester clubs drawing each other in this stage uh, of the competition, which means that they can both progress through. And looking at the teams that are left, do you think it's, you know, I don't want to say this, and, and of course, you know, this isn't to, to denigrate the competition and, and this isn't to downplay, uh, you know, the chances that the likes of Fulham and Brighton still have of potentially going to Wembley, but. Is it we're looking like this trophy is going to end up in Manchester hands? It's just a case of whether or not it's red hands or blue hands.
1: Um, yes, I, th- I think that does appear to be the likelihood. Obviously, you've got City coming against Burnley, which actually is a very, very interesting game because But Burnley have been sensational. this year. I, I was worrying for Burnley when they went down, actually, with their own ship and things like that. And, and the manner in which they went down as well. I, I was worrying they were going to be Expecting quite a long stand championship. I know they've, they've bounced back. should convince a company doing a fabulous job over there. Um, but they're, ba- they're both dangerous games for both teams, really. And you see, Manchester United have slipped up at home a couple of times. Obviously, they had the draw to Southampton. They had the draw to Leeds recently as well. And they, they may still even be a little bit wounded as well from the, the huge defeat against Liverpool. So. On paper, yes, it's probably going back to Manchester. <clears throat> but then again, Brighton have got Grimsby Town, and Brighton have looked brilliant under Deserby. I mean, he had, he had a bit of a slow start. I think he lost his first three matches at Brighton or something like that. But they've they've re- they've really clicking now. You've got players like Matoma's being amazing, and I think I really really like Levi Colwell at Brighton as well. I know he's not had too many appearances since he's been on loan, but he looks like a cracking player as well. So, um, assuming Brighton progress past Grimsby, which to be fair, is, is not exactly a done deal, just Jax Grimsby have been quite impressive in the FA Cup. Brighton will be dangerous. They'll be very dangerous. They've already beaten Man United this year, will be on the first first game season. And I thought they played quite well against Manchester City early in the year as well. So, it is, it's very tough. I, it probably is going back to Manchester. I think, I think United will be have the best chance. Just because Ten Hag is obviously trying to get that winning mentality back, they're trying to get the feel of winning trophies again. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw United win the FA Cup and Europa League as well. So and plus City, City won the Champions League and the Premier League. It's it's interesting. It's it's certainly not a done deal just yet, and you can't count Fulham out either as well. I mean, I thought, th- I mean, let's be honest, they are quite dreadful against Arsenal on the weekends. That could have been sixes at sevens. So, they will certainly be looking
0: for a reaction from that game. Yeah, I think we're all at Harry the Haddock fans this weekend for Grimsby Open, and they uh, can get the fairy tale and they end up at Wembley. Um, Tom, switching on to the Premier League, though, um, and obviously Manchester City being in FA Cup action does allow Arsenal an opportunity to stretch their legs a little bit more at the top of the table, doesn't it? Um, and especially the last few weeks, uh, Arsenal have had the pressure of kind of trying to match what City have done before. We've had others on this show who suggest that, you know, City playing first. is actually more pressure on City, you know, given the fact that they're training in the title race. They have to then put the pressure on Arsenal and it's down to Arsenal to react, so actually it's more pressure. But no game for City in the Premier League this weekend because of their FA Cup commitments. And Arsenal up against the Crystal Palace side who have a, a very inexperienced goalkeeper in there again in, uh, in Joe Whitworth because of an injury to present and the and, and the Sam Johnson still coming back from an injury of his own. Arsenal at home against the Crystal Palace side that are struggling to to knock Snow off a rope at a minute it, it is that opportunity to kind of stretch that lead a little bit more and you kind of it's all about points on the board at this stage in the season isn't it and you know you kind of you think oh well City have a game in hand they, they'll they'll win that they'll be fine but it's it's that mentality is it as well so that City might come off the pitch Saturday night they'll look at it and they'll look again Sunday and, and it's growing again and Arsenal stretch their legs at the top
2: yeah no absolutely I think um At this stage in the season, anything you can do to kind of get points to the board, especially with Arsenal's fixtures coming up, they still got, I think, City to have all Newcastle away from home. So anything they can do in front of their own fans, anything they can do to just maybe, you know, mentally make City think, oh, okay, these guys are, are they even catchable? Um, I think, yeah, I think Pavis, despite, you know, they haven't won a game in 2023, they've been struggling. they Got a rookie keeper Their Then, record at the Emirates last few years has been surprisingly impressive. that if uh, I think it's the last four, they've got unbeaten. Last season, Arsenal needed Lacazette to score in the last minute to rescue a point. And I'm, I'm sure Arsenal will be looking at those games and, and thinking, okay, yes, on paper we we should be blowing this team away, but we can't be underestimating them. We can't. Uh, you can't think it's a foregone conclusion, despite you know going up against a team who, like, you know, the the drop off since the turn of the year has meant Palace are uh, fighting for as well. So it's it's a tough one. I think opening weekend of the season when Arsenal won away at Palace that was a sign that okay maybe things are changing maybe this team has a bit more steel about it because that's the sort of game you might have felt they would slip up on before, and now it's just a case of you know can they show that. They're still real contenders now. They still, uh, like they still have that level of control, um, which even last season there wasn't wasn't necessarily there.
0: Patrick, just um, sticking with Palace and other teams that are struggling uh, a bit at the minute. Um, and I think we say this regularly on this show, but because there's still so many teams involved in the fight at the bottom, that there are these crucial games where they seem to be taking each other on, and, and the. And obviously, you know, they are the archetypal to avoid the, I mean, I can't avoid the cliche here, but they are the six-pointers. And, and this weekend's one it's the turn of, uh, of Wolves against Leeds. And in terms of that game at Molyneux, you know, you look at it now and, and there's a, there's a four-point gap between the two sides, Leeds being in the relegation zone, and, and Wolves, you would ordinarily say the nice position of safety, about 13, but there's only four points splitting them from, from Leeds in 19. Obviously, Leeds win, it goes down to a point. Wolves kind of open up a bit of daylight, though, if it goes the other way. And these games, and, and, and for these sides as well, and Palace have, you know, a tough game against Arsenal to come this weekend. But it's just going to be an almighty fight and a battle, isn't it? At the bottom and these games between these sides, no matter who it is, you know, whoever's playing who each weekend. But when you're playing against one of your relegation rivals, because there's so many in there this year at this late stage in the season. These are going to be really crucial, but probably really tight and cagey affairs at the same time.
1: I, I think Wolves should be fine. I think Jillian Opategi is too good of a manager to be in charge of a side that gets relegated from the Premier League. I'm I'm sure Sevilla fans will completely disagree with me after after the horrific campaign he had this year. But but you are right. It's it is a real, real subfest. And but the thing is, not lots and lots of teams, they're they're taking they're the winning games, which on paper they have no right to be winners. You know, Sean Dyche beating Arsenal in his first game. So sure that Everton beating Arsenal in the first game. Sean Dyche. And then obviously Southampton beating Stamford Bridge, beating Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. And I, I know that was a relatively wounded Chelsea side, but that I think that was pretty much seen as a guaranteed three points from Chelsea at the time. And West Ham are very strong on their day as well. That they haven't had too many days this year, unfortunately. And I think Leicester City, Leicester City's camp hold will almost depend on whether James Madison is fit or not because they're, they're a completely different team when he's in there. He's really the one which connects midfield to the attack. So it's it's going to be very very tight. This, this could be one of the closest relegation battles we've seen since Survival Sunday when. When not one team had been relegated yet, they all could have stayed up. So that they, they just need they need to win these games. I think Crystal Crystal Palace are in a massive freefall at the minute. They, as, as you said, they can't knock snow off a rope at the to, at at this current moment. But I I think Wolves at home. I think they're going to. I think they'll close out that victory. Yeah, I really
0: do. Yeah, in terms of Palace, I I think we're all in agreement that you wouldn't want to be in their situation at the minute entering into a relegation battle in this kind of form. At least they had shots and target against Brighton on Wednesday, you know. So, you know, positives, at least, anyway, green shoots of recovery. Um, Tom, just to close out the show this morning, um, talking about positivity and and green shoots of recovery, Chelsea seems to have turned the corner recently under Grand Poth and there seems to be a good mood around the club again. There have been all this talk, um, you know, earlier this month about, is he the right man for the job? Is Todd Burley going to sack him because results weren't going the right way? They're still languishing down in 10th, let's not forget it. But up through to a Champions League quarterfinal, two wins on the spin in the Premier League. And of course, for a team like Chelsea, they'll probably want a few more wins on the spin. But it seems that there seems to be momentum behind them, at least. And they seem to be going in the right direction. And I suppose, you know, trying to continue that against Everton is the key thing this weekend. But that's their aim now for the rest of the season, isn't it? You know, they'd love to get into a European competition of some form. Um, and if they can in the season on a good run of form, then that will obviously get them in there and then hopefully obviously carry that three to next season and, and try to get closer to the to the top clubs again.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, they've been in, in this spot before, haven't they? I think 15-16 uh, season where um, when Mourinho that sat hidden came in for the second half of the campaign and it just felt like a bit of a reset and, you know, take some positives. You know that you're not going to get top four and you just kind of, you've got to build on that. and. I think one of the things, even before the recent form on the Potter, I think there was still like an, an overriding sense that okay, the players are behind him, there is still positivity when the results aren't coming. I think a lot of that is you know, it's a team where without having someone who's going to bang you in 20 goals a season, there are going to be a lot more close games, so there'll be a lot more kind of you know, games that maybe you should win 1 0 but end up being 0 0 or you know, it should draw, or end up losing. Um, and yeah as you say things are starting to click the dortmund game was obviously a a big statement in that sense um and yeah i think it's going to be tough for, for fans who are used to you know being fighting for for whatever every single season year on year um it's going to be tough to look at a season and say oh we kind of have to write some of this off and kind of look ahead but you know potter is as far as we can tell, not going anywhere. He's he's going to have a, a preseason with the players that he's been allowed to bring in. I think um, it's always a challenge when you you got you know a window of one manager signings, then the manager goes a couple of weeks later. It's always going to be tough to kind of for the new guy to come in and find finds out or even kind of yeah guess what what the role for those guys are going to be. So I think um, I think a lot is riding on preseason. Um, I think this year, yeah, they can get some kind of momentum building results. They can get some morale building results. And I think that's, you know, back in summer, that's not what they liked, but it's got to kind of accept that's where they're at at the moment. And I can see them being strong next year.
0: And if all else fails, they can look forward to the Club World Cup in 2025 as well um gentlemen really appreciate your time this morning as ever Uh, of course you can keep up to date with all the latest on mirror football uh mirror sport (laughs) daily star football daily express basically all of reach's lovely national titles uh check out their websites you can keep up to date for the latest news from there Uh, of course you can watch this episode back if you're listening to it you can watch this episode back on uh, our mirror football youtube channel where you can find some lovely great cracking video content there as well Hopefully, we have John Cross back on Football Digest next Thursday. Might even be live and direct from Naples. All going well, uh, but for now, it's goodbye.